Thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. How did Dr. Stu McGill take top-ranked powerlifter Brian Carroll from his devastating back injury in 2012 to a full recovery and numerous national first-place finishes? The formula, compile your list of prerequisites for the sport, determine what you can do, and then calculate the difference. It's as simple as putting pen to paper, and yet the noise of the hacks and gimmicks make choosing the best tools possible difficult for the layman. However, the body is often far less complicated than an athlete's psyche particularly when that psyche is corrupted by tremendous pain. Learn how Dr. McGill treats the pain by repairing the system's mechanics and allowing the athlete to build on pain-free ranges of motion. As Doc says, pain doesn't reveal what you should do, but a proper assessment will. The man is salt of the damn earth, and he is like the master Yoda of recovery. So much good stuff in this episode. Here it is, episode 233. Athlete Nation, what is up? You have Luke, you have Tex, you have John, sitting here in Austin, Texas, at Power Athlete HQ, sitting in the gym on a nice crisp autumn day, giving you the current episode of the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. It's called Power Athlete Radio. Yeah, Power Athlete Radio. It is the premier podcast in strength and conditioning. Yeah, you're listening to Power Athlete Radio, people. And here's a couple public service announcements for you. First and foremost, we are like 50 days out. Well, by the time you hear this, we'll be 40 40 days out out. from our 2017 Power Athlete Symposium. Now, I've called a couple of the guys, what I'm calling like the people at the family party, who are the, you know, when we first piloted this thing, Back four years ago, was it? You know, our uh, first one? I, well, will this yeah. be number five, right? So I, just, I don't know, just call, stay in touch. and like, dude, this is lining up to be one of the most epic symposiums. I'm like, bro, we only go up year after year. That's how we do it. Listen, people, tickets are still available. If you are hesitating on this, you are sorely mistaken. You need to go to powerathletehq.com slash symposium and check that page out and get yourself a freaking ticket, right? So we have a killer set of speakers lined up. Unfortunately... Our guest today is not one of them, but maybe next year, maybe. Uh, we have Dr. Mike Wasselissen, Derek Woodski, Lindsey Matthews, Master Splinter, a.k.a. Rafa Weez, a.k.a. Texas Raz al Ghul. <laughs> <laughs> Ingrid Markham, the Iron Valkyrie, Rob Wolf, uh, knows a thing or two about nutrition, right? Yeah, Andy Stumpf, uh, former Navy SEAL, yep. uh, world record holder in the longest, what is it? Like wingsuit. Wingsuit, unmanned uh, flight mm-hmm. suit. Uh, on you know. Pen- Tempur-Pedic mattress commercial guy. Yeah, yeah. And, and also now avid hunter. And then the, uh, the other superhero Rudy Reyes who's like sending amazing on set like videos of him I don't know what he's doing. Uh, insulting. Right? He, yeah. Well, he, he keeps texting me these uh, different love mantras about how, uh, you know, we have this kind of, um, you know, interesting connection where, you know, two souls meet, like, you know, understand your counterpoint in another. Yeah. I totally believe him. Yeah. I, why wouldn't you? It's great. And then his buddy, Bert Soren of Soren X, also our, uh, one of our title sponsors along with PowerDot. As you guys, I mean, if you guys could see where we're sitting right now, you would see a, uh, I guess you could say a... Uh, the premier gym in Austin, Texas? Well, yeah, that doesn't have members <laughs> and it's outfitted with all Soren X gear. So it's the best one we have. And then finally, uh, the Cosenta crew, the infamous Dr. Tom and his partner in crime, Dr. Christy Anderson. This is going to be, I'm telling you, this is going to be uh, epic. An epic event. If you are not signed up yet, you are on the out. And listen, people, this is where we talk about the party barge. John showed me an interesting picture this morning of a shipping container. Okay. Okay, wait, hold on. So, so, uh, 
uh, like if I have a little free time, which I rarely do, uh, I was looking yesterday for uh, some shipping containers on Craigslist and I came across a shipping container that had been converted into a coffee bar mm -hmm. and it had a putting green on the ceiling that I guess that people use for uh, like trade shows. So, uh -huh. you, so you pack it up, you put it on a trade show and I sent it to Luke and Luke's first comment is, you think we could convert that into a margarita bar? And I'm like, yes, we yeah. have power tools. And then put it on a barge and then it could be our party barge. So and like, then that's where John and I are like, we'll just use all the money from the symposium. Pause not. Not. Because people, it is going to a great cause. We also have a, a charity. It's our side hustle. Uh, some of our primary One hustles. One of our many side hustle, but, it, by, but probably should be our main hustle. The idea that uh, five, or our 501c3 Wade's Army, which is benefiting uh, families to fight pediatric cancer, more, uh, you know, more specifically neuroblastoma, the largest you know, killer of children under six years old. So all proceeds from that symposium are going directly to that charity this year. Right. And uh, we are currently in our like, T-shirt drive as well. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it will be ongoing. And we are two days. This re is released Friday. We are two days from Wednesday, November 12th. So an opportunity to really celebrate his life and turn a what would be a tragedy into an empowering moment. And so we've raised nearly half a million dollars for families in the fight. Uh, we funded four uh, phase one clinical trials and one of those went into phase two, so we kicked that another, I think, 25 Gs. And then we helped Devin Stills. So we're called Devin Stills, Cincinnati Bengal, Houston Texan, and his daughter Leah. She, you know, fought and won. Mm -hmm. So that, that's an opportunity, you know, that, to show this, this is a battle that can be won if the kid gets the right treatment. Yeah. And that's what we're here for. Yeah, I mean, the uh, uh, as you guys might or might not know, you know, uh, Wade DeBruin was a little boy that uh, we lost at 18 months, and the charity's named um, in his arm um, or in uh, in his honor. Uh, you know, they had a you know Wade's parents started this deal called Wade's Wings, and um, they asked us to, to get involved. And I knew we'd need an army, so I'm calling you out if you need uh, we need help. Um, you know, Wade's Army dot uh, org. Uh, come donate, give a shirt, come to the symposium. You know, we're going to have a silent auction and. Uh, of some incredible gifts, so feel free to donate. All proceeds are going to go to Wade's Army. And, and if uh, you're out there and you have an, an item to donate, so you, you have a small business or you have something and you want to throw it into the auction, uh, then hey, yeah, hit us that, up. Yeah, hit us up at events at Power Athlete HQ. We're, we're handling all the interference for this fundraising deal. And I guess one the, my final call to action on this thing, even if you don't plan on like donating, I, listen, I understand. And go to you. I don't think we do a good good enough job of telling the story of what we've accomplished with Wade's Army. So if you go to well, do you know why? Because we're terrible self promoters. I understand. I that. mean, I, I, uh, you know, we probably need a guy, you know. Follow, following us around, taking pictures of us, showing us all of our side hustles right. so that we can post it on Instagram and just make people believe we're really doing a lot. But actually, we are so busy doing so many things that we forget to tell people about it. And, um, you know, the fight and the work that we do with Wade's Army is some of the most enriching and uh, most powerful stuff we do. So um, if you want to get on our team and help us and uh, just get out there and join the fight, man, yeah, uh, wadesarmy.com Wade's or, or wadesarmy.org. Both, actually, but... And Both, if you want, yeah. but if you want to, let's say you are even a donor and you want to hear, like you want to see the story, go to wadesarmy.org slash Wade's Heroes or go to the menu and look up the heroes and you get to, you put a face to the name. Like you can see where your dollars and cents have gone. You know what I mean? Because there is no fucking party barge people. It is truly just a, a, a fundraising hustle effort to get out there and make a change. Like you said, John, it's the most powerful, empowering thing. I we, mean, we, we, we would love to have a Wade's Army party barge. So if anybody wants to donate a Wade's Army party uh, barge, we'll too. wrap it. And, um, you know, I mean, just like uh, Blade versus Sandstorm all summer. Doo -doo 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 -doo. 
Speaking of Blade versus Sandstorm, that's a perfect segue into today's guest. <laughs> Is it? Yeah. Oh, wait, hold on. But I you forgot. Consider... But, but you also forgot our final oh, that's right. CrossFit SSA slash CrossFit football slash uh, specialty seminar SME deal that we've done for CrossFit for the last eight and a half years, starting in 2009. The final one is coming up in Cookville, Tennessee on November 18th and 19th. A week from today, if you're listening Friday. So uh, if you want to get a chance to come out and hang out with uh, Tex, uh, myself, and Luke, and maybe a few other special guests. John, can you call me by my Instagram handle, please? Oh, the Luke Summers. (laughs) What a douche. Mega douche. Why do you guys let me do this stuff? Uh, You mean (laughs) TLS, the Luke Summers? No, but, um, you know, we entered in this relationship with CrossFit uh, a number of years ago with the idea of trying to influence athletics in terms of like power sports. So, um, you know, using functional movements performed at high intensity on the idea of developing power sports as a uh, kind of a segue because, um, you know, having done traditional CrossFit, uh, I saw many limitations for sports. The idea, you know, no lack of rotation, you know, very one dimensional and how the movements go and uh, just overcooking the same movement patterns. So I offered a different style of training um, at the behooving of CrossFit. And uh, over a number of years, we were able to go out and travel the world and meet a whole bunch of really cool people and influence their training. Uh, but that relationship has come to an end. So if you guys want to come out and, and be part of the final one, Sign up. Uh, you can find us. Uh, PowerAthleteHQ.com slash events. And if you want to hear even more of the story, what went on the last crew episode 231 uh, tells the story. Sure. Right? So we don't have to beat a dead horse, even though we We love, love beating a dead horse. Beat but dead horse. we have a way, way, way better experience going on today with our special guest, Dr. Stu McGill. A.K.A. The Blade of back pain. <laughs> no? <laughs> hey, Doc, uh, what's going on, I, man? I think he's more like the ninja of back pain. I mean, uh, so uh, just a little history. Stu McGill is kind of like the Raza Ghoul of back pain in a lot of ways in that uh, when I played in the NFL, if a guy had back injury, it was like, I think he has to go see Stu McGill. And there was this kind of like legendary uh, doctor named Stu McGill that like they would ship people off to to assess and find back pain. Thank God I never had back pain because uh, the dudes that I know that hurt their backs were absolutely miserable. Mm -hmm. They always ended up uh, taking way too many painkillers and just were pretty miserable people. And um, so, I mean, if they went out and saw Stu McGill, I knew shit was serious. And then it was after I retired from the NFL that I actually connected with Stu and got to know him and, uh, you know, really got to dive into his work and see all the great stuff he was doing. And I'm just thankful I got to meet you after my NFL career and not during and I mean that in, in, with much respect. Well, thanks, John. And good morning uh, to the Tex and Luke. And, and I just have to say, listening to all that, what a fabulous lineup of speakers that you have. Uh, that sounds terrific and, and a great cause. And, and if I can also comment, I just enjoyed listening to your um, thoughts on uh, self-promotion and, and, and what we see these days are these critters who spend so much time on Facebook when they should be getting off Facebook and becoming masters of their craft. Right. So anyway, I appreciate all you do. Oh, well, thanks, Doc. So I guess, Tex, why don't you take us into this? Uh, we got your book here, right? And we paged through it. And we came up with some questions for you. And I'm sure we're going to kind of maybe scratch those questions, but just go into some really... Well, I don't know. Uh, Let's see well, where we go with this. Well, no, I yeah. mean, uh, uh, you know, uh, for those of you guys listening, um, you know, uh, 
Doc McGill just came out with a new book with uh, Brian Carroll, who's um, you know world champion powerlifter who obviously had a back injury, and they got together and uh, wrote a pretty killer book about you know not only um, how to deal with the back injuries, but it's called the gift of injury. Mm-hmm. Uh, Doc, can you give us a little background on the book and you know how it all kind of came about and just kind of the uh, the lead in story so we can get cracking on the good information. Well, certainly uh, the, the title "Gift of Injury." Uh, was something I've been thinking about for a while. And and I think of one uh, Olympic lifter who uh, had set three world records after he had a disc herniation. And he said to me, you know, it was a real gift. It taught me the discipline of training well, building resilience, and then going out and training to the level that you need to, to set a world record. And uh, so in, in that uh, rubric, I guess, the injury was a gift. He probably never would have set the world record without that forced discipline. So uh, on to Brian Carroll. Uh, Brian, I'd heard of his name in powerlifting, of course. He'd had the uh, head, uh, highest squat in, in two different weight classes. Um, but anyway, I, I got this phone call one day, and it, it turned out to be Brian. And uh, he said, you know, I'm, I'm at the end of my rope not realizing just how at the end of the rope he truly was. And so he flew up with his wife uh, from Florida up to Canada. I saw him and uh, here was a a fantastic athlete so corrupted by pain and uh, just couldn't uh, first of all, he was embarrassed. He, he, uh, <laughs> the impact on his life was uh, enormous. Anyway, to make a long story short, um, I said, well, I, I, and by the way, the injury was horrific. He had split his sacrum front to back, crushed L5, and the discs above and below L5 were, 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 were very substantially damaged. Was this an acute injury or was it just chronic? Well, you know, we really don't know. We see the evidence. We we test him, and 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 we we get an idea from the from the clinical presentation. Uh, a few years earlier, he was uh, doing a test for the police force, and he had fallen and pile driven his spine in an obstacle course. So we don't know if that was the original compressive insult or not. But clinically, he just got worse and worse and worse over the next years, and uh, it really affected his performance until the point he was just in unrelenting pain uh, all the time. But uh, when I saw him, I said, you know, uh, I don't know if I can get you out of pain. All I can do is promise you my best effort. But then he said something very curious. He says, but I I want the next world record. I I want another go at it. And I said, well, I'll I'll tell you, if you were my son, um, let's focus on getting out of pain. And then we're going to have a conversation do you enjoy this life and where you are right now being out of pain? And then at that time, we will make the decision to completely morph the training and uh, see if we can uh, build the foundation for a a pain-free run at uh, another record. Well, he did get out of pain and he flew back up with his wife again. We all went out to dinner with with my wife and we decided, uh, or, or I didn't decide, I was quite trying to dissuade him from this because the, the risk is, is pretty high now. And uh, he says, no, I, I want to uh, have a run at this next world record. And I said, well, here's what, here's what I know. Um, proceed with bone callusing to try and fill in the bone of this, this horrible uh, fracture. And we will slowly uh, build the foundation that you need 
to uh, take well over a thousand pounds down your back, learn how to steer those forces, forces learn how to recover when you make a one or two millimeter uh, error, uh, because you won't correct one or two millimeters yeah. if you're under a car. It's, you know, so the motor strategies, the ability to bear load, um, the drills to create dense neural drive from the motor cortex. You've got to build the hardware in the body to carry that much nervous signal from the brain. As, as, as all three of you know, strength is mental is as much as it is physical. So you build the hardware and then the software that goes along with true strength. Anyway, that was uh, the, the story of the book. But then as we started to write, he surprised me with, I learned a lot about him as, as we were writing together. And then it became more of a manual for building the foundation for strength. So it was a much bigger book than we ever anticipated setting out. Well, I mean, you're talking about building a foundation uh, at a huge disadvantage of like a, a catastrophic injury, but, you know, kind of like we were talking before the show, we were talking about how Honda kind of has this trickle down design taxonomy where in its formula one cars, the civic is a, a recipient of some of the, the breakthroughs there. Right. So if you're talking about somebody who has such a disadvantage, people who are healthy, right. Could benefit from the same baseline practice to get the foundation ready to then excel. Well, uh, the the thing that we've realized is that nobody wants to do the little things that it takes to ensure greatness, right? People just want to come in, like, I just want to do my training this. And if you go through it, you almost have to go through and, uh, you know, put a series of assessments or warm-ups, whatever you want to call them. I mean, I started calling them warm-ups years ago to trick people into basically giving me some basic assessments and start doing some patterning that didn't involve, that didn't look like just what I'm going to do today. I mean, mm -hmm. if you, you know, you think about our idea of, uh, you know, trying to develop stability through isometric contractions, whether it be just being able to hold a basic dead bug position, side pillar, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, plank, I mean, whatever it looks like, just basically being able to mobilize and stabilize the spine. I mean, people just don't want to do it. But th this is where I really enjoy the title, the gift of injury. So, John, you talk well, about your, your first year in the NFL and probably many years afterwards. And then my my freshman year in college, I broke my ankle. I couldn't play. It was season ending. So the loss, taking a sport away, it allowed for perspective that I could invest in training and, and game for the rest of that. So I, well, I if, love the titles. Dude. If I hadn't ruptured my patellar tendon, we probably wouldn't have been sitting here. I mean, uh, just some of the observations that I made and, uh, you know, the like the emotional battle that I had of, uh, you know, the doctor coming in and saying, you know, I've never had anybody come back from this injury. Your career is over in my very first year as an NFL player, rupturing my patellar tendon. And then the training and the, the steps that I had to kind of go through to navigate this, you know, uh, pre-internet days where I actually had to pick up the phone and call people on the phone and talk to them or fly out and meet people. And, um, you know, that took me through, uh, you know, uh, kind of a chance meeting and, you know, you know, conversation on EMS, Charlie Francis, and really just started uh, progressing my knowledge in terms of if I wanted to fix myself, I couldn't depend on just the people that were in front of me. I had to increase my genealogy, increase the circle and reach out. And, um, you know, I ended up coming back and starting 16 games that next year. And if I hadn't, you know, been proactive or I just stood on the sideline. And I think, um, you know, what's great about this book is, you know, you have a guy like Brian Carroll, who's, you know, world champion and is broken and, you know, had to start reaching out and looking and saying, you know, who can help me? And he just, you know, happened to, you know, come across, you know, the, uh, the Ross of Ghoul back injuries, mm -hmm. you know, Stu McGill. Uh, Stu, you talk about 
two stages in your guide to recovery. Like you said, this is a, a manual. Your guide to recovery, stage one, was get rid of pain. And two, determine the training program. And that's, and that's it, right? So talk to us about uh, applying that perspective, whether this is post-injury or pre-injury or just coaches need to take this. Yeah, well, I was uh, just listening to you again, the great wisdom that uh, you, you just described. You just hit the nail on the head of what characterizes the great professional and successful athletes. It's those who realize that they have to take the time and do what, do what is necessary for them to, to get rid of pain. Pain is a terrible corrupter of, uh, it inhibits strength, it inhibits speed, it upsets balance, all of these things. So to get rid of that first, but you know, when you, when you first meet an athlete and you say, what are your goals? And if they say, well, I want to get back on the PGA or I got to get back in the NFL, I, I know they have the wrong goal. And that's why they've always been unsuccessful in previous attempts. But when they're professional enough to say, no, that's stage two. We now focus on stage one to get the assessment to understand their particular pain mechanism, whatever it is, and then use the appropriate approach to wind down the pain mechanism from a neurological point of view and from a physical point of view, build the structure back once again. And if you want to play golf and you've got back pain and you keep stretching to play golf, you will never play golf well again and you're going to stay in pain. Can so it's that professionalism for stage one. Now you've got the ability to build a athletic foundation to match the demand of whatever that sport's going to require. It can, absolutely is a two-stage process. Can you get into pain a little bit? I mean, um, you know, we've had uh, everybody from Dr. Tom do, you know, other, you know, experts come on and talk about, you know, with what they call the pain neuro matrix. The idea that, uh, you know, pain not only exists, you know, where the injury is, but starts to kind of uh, like in the term that you used, pain corrupts, is such a, a powerful statement. The idea that, you know, here's this kind of acute injury or something happens and all of a sudden now he goes from a physical, uh, physical and then goes into this kind of uh, mental, emotional and starts getting, with, you know, kind of wired into the brain. And a lot of times, um, you know, pain is kind of a terrible indicator of injury. Uh, you know, I've seen people that, you know, if you were to look at an MRI, uh, would have horrendous MRIs where you do, how's this guy not in pain? And then you see other MRIs where they look totally healthy and the person's in tremendous pain. So can you get into a little idea of like, you know, how you manage pain and really just a kind of the, uh, you know, the problem that we run into where it becomes such a great corruptor? Yeah. Uh, may I just uh, address that issue of MRIs? Because I see such a, a, a lot of uh, uh, misguided discussion about the use of MRIs. An MRI is a picture, but the, the curious thing about it is it shows both the wound and the star. So when you see something on MRI, say it's, it's, it's a end plate fracture in a spine, the radiologist doesn't know if that occurred yesterday or 20 years ago. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, here's a comment. Well, no wonder they, they, they've healed from that in the past 20 years. It's no longer clinical. And I don't think radiologists should be allowed to write a report um, without the context of the person in front of them. So do the assessment, understand whether that person is an NFL football player or, or a computer couch potato. Um, and now you understand their pain triggers so that the evidence you're seeing on the picture 
is related. It may or may not have anything to do with their pain, or it may be the magic insight that you need. So do you see why you always need yeah. to see? And this is a, it's a major failure in well, our in our medical practice. And I remember Dr. Tom would well, be, well, you know, he they're was, searching for pathology, right? Yeah. Like, like, okay, like, hey, like, here's the picture. The problem is, is um, I hate a lot of the MRI stuff merely for the fact that uh, I've had people that have had no sense of pain get an MRI and then all of a sudden they read the radiology part, they talk to the doctor, and then all of a sudden it becomes this, like, crutch. This is the reason. This is this. And I, I think it's bullshit. I'd rather not know what's going on and just <laughs> deal with the pain and the, you know, like the lack of range of motion dysfunction and try to fix it. And being like, oh, uh, if you're telling me something like this that isn't necessarily going to help me, you know, like teach me a set of skills that allow me to be a better version. Don't tell me what's wrong. Show me and like, let's fix this shit. So, yeah, and, and we were out there with Dr. Tom and remember he was working on your shoulder. We did some blood work stuff and we were talking about this topic. And one of the isms that have stuck with me is like, I, I don't treat MRIs. I treat the patient. Right. So it's like, it's just a variable. It's just some insight. It may be telling the story. It may not but it comes down to the treatment with the patient and then the outcome of the treatment. That's what he's more focused on. And that, I don't know if that parallels kind of your thought process here, Stu, but it can be well, kind of some, but if you were to uh, MRI a guy like uh, Brian Carroll's back, I mean, these, you know, they would, they would probably look at it and think, holy shit, this guy should be in a wheelchair. He was in a, you know, terrible car accident, you know, this, I mean, they're, you know, he should be doing like uh, uh, you know, fucking walking three days a week and, you know, uh, you know, not doing anything physical. And the problem is that's not who he is. And so, uh, you know, we go back to the idea that the best athletes in the world aren't necessarily the best athletes in the world for whatever reason, other than the fact that they found a way to recruit around right. injury. Um, you know, everybody that's playing a sport to some extent has injury. How you manage and how you recruit and move around it is based on, you know, neurological wiring, you know, your physiological movement patterns, everything that you can do to try to continue to play it and compete at a high level. So, I mean, I, I just don't care to limit people with just saying like, you know, because I'll, I'll tell you this, um, I've sat with doctors, like I sat with a doctor who uh, did an MRI for my workman's comp deal on my shoulder and told me I needed a shoulder replacement. And then I told him I benched, you know, 450 for reps, you know, the week before, and I don't have any shoulder pain. And the guy was like, oh, okay, then, then why are you here? I'm like, I'm here for the workman's comp. He's like, you don't want a shoulder replacement? I'm like, no. He's like, okay, okay, see you later. And I'm thinking to myself, why the fuck would that guy saddle me with that? Mm -hmm. You know, like I'm, you know, I, I, I'm training, every, all my training's going good. Yeah, I, I, I lack some range of motion overhead, but I was still strong. Uh, you know, I had no uh, deterioration of the muscle mass. Everything was pretty good in terms of the function. And then all of a sudden he wants to replace my shoulder because he doesn't have a method in place to deal with it other than just to cut out and replace parts, which just, so yeah, that's my, you know. Sorry, I go off on a rant, sorry. <laughs> yeah, well, did you want to have a crack at that pain issue? Yeah, let's do it. Well, uh, back pain, it, it, there's no such thing as non-specific back pain. It's always specific. There's always a cause. So therefore, it needs a very thorough assessment to understand the particular mechanism in that particular person as to why they have uh, back pain. Um, uh, so certain types of pain require uh, the removal of the mechanism, which might be too much motion. Again, you have to address the pain mechanism. Some people 
people unbeknownst to them, let's say they have a disc bulge, they've, they've been told they have piriformis syndrome because they have a pain in their butt cheek and they've got tight hamstrings. And then when I measure their hamstrings, uh, it isn't tight hamstrings that they're perceiving at all. However, they've been continuing to uh, stretch their hamstrings. In fact, they had a tight sciatic nerve. You will not stretch away sciatic nerve pain. You have to stop stretching it and let the nerve settle and desensitize. So do you see how pain in of its own, it doesn't really reveal to you what you should do, but a proper assessment will. Then we get into the issue of all the psychosocial uh, issues that go along with pain and no question. Uh, they are very substantial in some people. But what came first? Were they a psychological uh, case first and then they got back pain? Or did the physical pain come first and then they became uh, psychologically troubled? When you look at the definition of torture from the World Health Organization, it is low-grade chronic pain. It deprives you of your sleep. It makes you mentally weak. It's how you break someone down to admit to something in torture, but I've just described chronic back pain. <laughs> so uh, let's treat the pain and then we will see how all the psychosocial orders disappear. When a person gets their mental, mental constitution back, they're able to sleep, uh, etc. And that's always been our uh, uh, approach us. I'm, I'm just hearing the exact opposite of the application just from uh, experience with athletic trainers. It's just, all right, well, we're just going to get either your leg back to the proper equal size or we're just going to get to the point where you can run your 10 yards and then get you back to practice. Well, but the other thing is uh, as an ATC and most of the, the you know, training modalities that they have available to them are kind of bullshit to me. You know, ice and stem and being able to just kind of constantly throw mobile or uh, modalities at them trying to manage that deal. And they never get back to, you know, the dysfunction or necessarily why this happened. Now, if you have, you know, in football, a lot of this stuff is impact related. Like, you know, you step and, you know, blow out your ankle and it's, you know, super swollen and they want to do it. But uh, like, I always think uh, a lot of times with the injury, if you can look at the root cause and or necessarily try to fix it, I think you are uh, ahead of the game uh, tremendously. Um, the one thing, though, that has always been very nervous for me, especially is the guys that I saw with back pain, uh, it didn't like uh, – your knee might hurt, your ankle, your shoulder, whatever it is, but back pain becomes that weird one where now it starts molding an entire personality. And uh, I don't know why that is, why it's so... Um uh, be, like the back pain, like if you look at like the amount of people that are hooked on opiates, if you were to kind of trace their injuries, like, hey, you know, I, I went to the doctor for this, you know, for this pain, this injury, and he hooked me on opiates. The amount of people that have gone to the doctor for back pain and got hooked on opiates is far outreaches anything else. And I just wonder Versus what, like shoulder pain, yeah. knee pain, stuff like that. Yeah, yeah the injuries. So I, I just wonder why, uh, why back pain, and it probably has to do with more like the spine, you know, the nervous system, you know, the fact that it's an injury around something that's so central to the body and connects, you know, really just the entire length of the body that there's no way to kind of isolate it. There's no way to, to necessarily alleviate it. Like you can't lay down, you can't mobilize it. It's just there constantly at you all the time. Well, you know, if if a, a thorough assessment really ought to reveal the mechanism. So if you can say to the person, can you find a specific posture or perform a specific motion or take a certain load without pain? Now tell me the motions 
phosphorylation loads that cause pain. Now that tells us an awful lot right there. Let's go back to what you can do and start winding down the pain sensitivity. So if I had a thumb and I kept hitting it with a small hammer over and over again, see chronic back pain to me is just repeated acute episodes. So if someone has a, say a disc bulge and they didn't understand, no one coached them as to what the mechanism of a disc bulge is, which is compression and bending for that particular injury. So they uh, might very well have done physical work all day. They might, uh, but they, they bent for the toilet in a certain way that allowed the mechanism to uh, suddenly become uh, acute. Um, if they were aware of the mechanism so that they hip hinged until that disc settled down, they would never have sensitized it. So anyway, my point is, if I keep hitting my thumb with a, with a little hammer, it stays sensitive. Doing exercise to an already sore thumb won't get it better. Leave it alone. So what we do with back pain patients is we show them for the first time the root mechanism of their pain and we give them alternatives. We show them simple humbling things, just like we did with Brian Carroll in the book. We showed them, and here's literally the best squatter in the world, and I showed him how to get on and off the toilet, in and out of his car, uh, how to tie his shoes, how to sneeze, etc., to wind down the pain. And uh, after a while, that beautiful physicality and all of those movement engrams that he had perfected in his brain were unleashed once again. They weren't corrupted by uh, pain. And as all three of you are, are well aware, um, and we've measured this in uh, people, chronic pain inhibits the gluteal muscles. Chronic pain facilitates the psoas muscle. Uh, if, if, if you don't address these things uh, and they are uh, so uh, overriding of those person's movement patterns, they have no hope to de-stress and uh, wind down the pain. Anyway, I could go into all sorts of different uh, mechanisms of pain and then the subsequent cascades, but it goes back to teaching. You're empowering the person. Mm-hmm. And, and it's so interesting when you say to uh, a person, you know, you're, thanks, thank you for not treating me like a five-year-old because all I got when I went to the doc was I have degenerative disc disease. There's no such thing as degenerative disc disease. They have no disease. They had a very specific mechanical driver of their pain. And I can prove over and over and over again, we all, you know, would you say to your mother, oh, hi, mom, I see you've got degenerative face disease because she's got a few wrinkles. <laughs> It's the same thing with the discs of your spine. We've all, we're all drying out, but uh, it's a matter of uh, exposing the system to the most appropriate load for the most appropriate adaptation. And isn't that your business? You, you have a 20 year old who sits for eight hours in front of the computer, you've got to undo the physical overexposure to that eight hour load. First of all, now you can start building have a little bit of fun in the gym would you do that to uh, a 70 year old mom no of course not it's a totally different approach. anyway there's there's a bit of a rant from me <laughs> well no but uh, you know it, we've gotten lulled into this idea that uh, you know and i uh, i go back in the first time i really ever heard this was at crossfit that uh, you know the demands of athletes are universal and it doesn't matter if it's an olympic athlete or grandma they need to do all this stuff and i kind of disagreed with that you know the training i did in the nfl isn't necessarily the training that i would offer with my mom now does she need to uh develop an aerobic base yes 
Does she right. need to do some form of glycolytic conditioning? Yes. Does do do I think that you know in terms of Wolf Law, you need to overload and stress like a basic you know lifting of weights? Sure. But am I going to put her you know into the same training program that I'm going to do? Of course not. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know Stu also made another uh, incredibly uh, you know perceptive deal. Finding what people can do is a lot better than pointing out what they can't do. And that's what always kind of drove me crazy with the CrossFit stuff. Oh, you can't squat this way. Well, this is how we squat. You can't do it and be like, okay, that's fine. But um, why don't we work in some other planes that we can figure out what you can do? And then as you develop and get better in that, let's come back to this because what you're doing is only telling me what I can't do. And um, for me, that was just kind of frustrating. I mean, I remember um, when I was rehabbing my patellar tendon, um, I couldn't squat. Um, I couldn't get neurologically, I could not get my quad to fire and I had no strength. So we found things I could do. I could trap bar deadlift. And to me, it was a similar uh, deal. And uh, I ended up working up and pulling the trap bar deadlift and, you know, kind of hammering that. And then all of a sudden, at some point, something neurologically clicked and I could squat again. But instead of sitting there and thinking, oh, shit, I can't squat. I better just go home now. I was constantly searching for different things that I could do. And, you know, things like stepping and lunging and knowing that I was going to be on one foot a lot. So I better be good at getting on one foot instead of just, you know, saying, "Mm, I can't do this. And uh, it just... uh, I think the problem becomes is that people aren't necessarily looking for, uh, you know, the positive. They're just constantly trying to say, hey, you're not doing this properly. And, and, and until you can do this properly, we can't progress. And I think that's an awful way to attack training and more importantly, increasing, uh, you know, the health and the strength and the, you know, uh, the resiliency of our athletes. Stu, I think you did. A hey, good, can I just oh, build off that yeah. point? Oh, yeah, because yeah, yeah. What, what John said was fantastic. Uh, we, why do we exercise? We, we exercise to adapt. You have to start the adaptation somewhere. So you're exactly right. Find out what they can do pain-free, get the adaptation started, and then know the goals. And this is another failure of many unsuccessful people coming back from injury. They don't know what their goals are. So they're choosing inappropriate tools, which are the exercises are the tools, and uh, they don't adapt successfully. So when I look, I mean, you you mentioned the the, the program earlier that you were formerly associated with. Look at the adaptation demand on the spine. When you you do 10 burpees, you are demanding of the spine that it be flexible. Well, the spine uh, discs are not ball and socket joints. The hips and shoulders are ball and socket joints. That's where the flexibility should be uh, um, focused upon. But when you bend your spine doing burpees, the discs actually behave like a fabric. The collagen fibers that form the disc are in rings of these fibers, just like uh, the, the, the Kevlar structure of fibers in your car tire. Very similar. They crisscross. Now, if you keep working mobility, you actually loosen the fibers in those fabric and then it will tear. And, oh, but, mm-hmm. but, but from a structural point of view, they start to delaminate. And the pressurized nucleus within slowly works its way through the delaminations and the softness in the fabric. But then look at what the next exercise is, 10 Olympic lifts. Those Olympic lifts, when you look at the very successful Olympic lift, lifters, would never, ever train 10 reps. And I, I've worked with quite a few. They don't. They train singles and doubles to perfection, the adaptation of that fabric disc is very stiffening. So it now can contain tremendous pressures for Olympic lifts. So you can't adapt both ways. 
either you adapt for stiffness and the ultimate stiffened spine is the power lifter. These guys, they can't tie their shoes. They have no mobility, but that's what they needed. If you're going to get under a thousand pounds and, and be successful with that stiffened fabric. But if you're a gymnast and, and, you know, a jujitsu player and whatnot, you've got to back off on some of those very, very heavy power lifts and develop more power in the hips and shoulders with the ability to be more reptilian with spine motion, but you can't have it both ways. So know your goals and choose the most appropriate ways to get there to build that resilience. Stu, you, you made a great point earlier. Um, about goal setting. Um, and I kind of took it back to my own personal where, you know, when I ruptured my patellar tendon, uh, my goal wasn't to necessarily come back and play in the NFL. It was the idea that I wanted to walk without a limp. And I remember the doctor telling me something, he goes, you know, you're going to, you know, never get your quad to fire. You're going to walk with kind of a limp. And I remember thinking to myself, I just want to be normal. I just want to walk without a limp. And if I have to train to, you know, not have, or my goal for training was so that nobody knew I was ever hurt. And, uh, and if I could get back to that, then I knew that getting back to the NFL was just going to be another, you know, just another goal. And so I think sometimes people take these kind of huge, you know, tasks ahead of them instead of saying, you know, the simple thing like, Hey, you know, I injured my back and instead of getting back to training, I just want to be pain free so that I can at least begin to have the conversation of training. And uh, I think, uh, you know, injuries are, uh, uh, you know, just part of the game. If you're going to be an athlete, you're going to get injured. Uh, what really defines an athlete is how you persevere through it. And I think teaching the tools and I, what I liked about this was teaching people the tools to understand the mechanism for it and how to persevere through it. And the idea of just setting a simple goal of, you know, I want to walk without a limp. I, I want to, you know, be able to be pain free so that when I approach a training uh, my training to get back to where I was, I'm not uh, carrying this excess baggage that I should have shucked months ago. And I think, um, you know, when people look at it like, hey, I need to get back, I need to get back. And they never really get there because they never take the steps to really just get back to ground zero because they've already dug themselves in a hole. So, I mean, would you say that part of this, you know, gift of injury in this book is just teaching people that, you know, you've dug yourself a hole, let's just get back to what ground level before we start kind of building and kind of understanding the goal setting approach? <clears throat> Excuse me. Yes, exactly. Uh, I tried to make a little bit of an algorithmic uh, approach uh, in the book. So, let, and we used Brian as the vehicle or the example. So, we, we asked, what do you need to be a world champion powerlifter? Well, you need a stiff spine. You need uh, mobile hips only to a point. Be because of too much mobility, uh, I want, as he's forming the lifter's wedge, testing the weight of the bar to explode in, say, a, a deadlift, I want as much elastic contribution as possible. So to stretch him out would have been dead wrong. So just appropriate mobility uh, there. Then we, we absolutely needed more grip strength. That is a, that, there's too many, you know, I, I, I see a trainer with, with the stay-at-home mom with two kids teaching her the fundamentals of deadlift with an over-under grip. And I think, what the <laughs> hell are you thinking? Why don't you teach the person how to grip, lock down with the lats, post, and, and build some decent a stiffening athleticism in this person. Then to go through the uh, drills with Brian to retrain his body to send a 100% neural drive. We had to do that. Anyway, the point being in the formality of all of this, we wrote down what the prerequisites were to win the worlds in powerlifting. Now that we know what the goals are, we then said, well, what do you have, Brian? 
and then it was time to reassess. Is your grip strength sufficient or is it a target? Um, are you able to the density of neural drive? Well, hell no. You've been inhibited for a few years. So that's going to be a major uh, um, uh, goal, um, etc. And then you choose the best tools, which are the exercises, to train the difference and you prioritize them. So leave some of the things alone. And you don't just need to keep deadlifting, deadlifting. No, you, you train the things that you've identified because deadlifting obviously chews up a tremendous amount of a person's capacity. When you do it, you should be mentally exhausted afterwards. And, uh, uh, but, but we can gain a training capacity by training the, the foundational elements. And then at the end, you use the actual athletic task to put it all together, get your timing down and, and the organization of stability and mobility through the body, etc. you know, to really express the athletic event. Anyway, so that, that was the algorithm uh, in the book, but it's universal to every athlete. Know what they need measure what they can do and choose the best tools to train the difference. But how many people go through that pencil and paper formality? Uh, Fair enough. No, not not enough. But I mean, you you did make a great point. It's something that uh, we've been hammering on is the idea that uh, uh, too much mobility is a, uh, is a huge liability. Um, you know, and I, I've seen this for years right at our seminars, the ultimate uh, liability. I've talked to people. I'm like, dude, you are, uh, you spend most of your time stretching and the problem becomes is that now you're so hypermobile that you can't protect yourself in terms of being able to do, uh, you know, dynamic movement. Uh, you know, a great example is, um, you know, in football, the ability to absorb and be able to, you know, return force, uh, there has to be a certain amount of rigidity within the body and if the things are too mobile i'm going to get hurt and uh i remember oh yeah tuned elasticity what you know when people ask me uh, because uh, i'm lucky in that i get to measure world-class performance in a whole variety of sports and people say well what, what what is it about the great athlete well of course they have mental gifts and they're touched by the hand of god and all of these other euphemisms but when when you measure them they are tuned elastically. So you use stretching very judiciously, not to create more motion, but to tune the elasticity. So a quarterback needs that beautiful tuned mobility through the hips, across the front of the chest, and in the final elastic tuning in the form. If you want to throw a hard football, 70 or 80 yards, that's tuned mobility. You sure as hell aren't going to get it from a deadlift where you would be too stiff or Again, you know, you, you, I don't know of a middle linebacker who can hit a long golf ball. They're too stiff and too strong, but that's what allows them to survive the hits and the impact of NFL football. But it mutually excludes them from hitting a long ball, just like the great long ball drivers would never last one play in the NFL. Their <laughs> mobility is inappropriate for that athletic demand, but they're fantastic at hitting a long ball, which it's not strength. If you try too hard to hit a golf ball, this because when a muscle contracts, it it not only creates force, but it also creates stiff. But you you know you try and kill a golf ball, it doesn't go very far because of the stiffness. It's it's really a thirty to thirty five percent effort muscularly to hit the longest golf. So these are all examples of tuned mobility. Or uh, another great example, I don't know if you saw the uh, NBA All Star Game this past year, but they brought out this fellow to do a dunk show in halftime. 
He put on the most magnificent dunk show you ever saw. Well, I mean, I've, I've measured him. His straight leg raise is to about 30 degrees. And then he's had trainers and, and coaches and whatnot tell him, oh, you, you better stretch those hamstrings. I said, don't you dare. That tune <laughs> stiffness is the spring that you jump off. And he doesn't do a deep squat. He plants the heel, boom, and the hammer of the hip explodes. The core is appropriate stiffening, so he's, he's pounding a stone, not pushing rope. It's all tuned uh, elasticity with hammers of neurological pulsing through his body. That's, that's what he's, you know, I measure the guys who can hit hard in the UFC. It is the ability uh, because the big muscular guys, they push their punches because of the muscular stiffness, but you get a guy who just poof, lets it fly unleashes through that tuned elasticity. He's not hitting you with, with his fist. He's hitting you with that impact of, of, uh, uh, you know, a hundred and if he's a welterweight, 170 pounds of stone. I'll give you a, a final example, which is kind of fun too. When I talk to the old uh, hockey players or the old NFL guys, uh, the hockey players, who did you really hate to play against because they hurt you? Not because they were dirty players, but you knew when they hit them, they had that, and, you know, the hockey players say, you know, Mark Messier or Scott Stevens, someone like that. But you get the old NFL guys. And do you remember um, Jack Tatum? Yeah. And when he hit you, he was looming in fast, but the instant he hit you, he turned to stone. And that was that he went right through people. And, uh, you know, this, this stability mobility rubric that you're describing with the neurology on top of that is what uh, is uh, fabulous. But, and, and they're not dirty players. It's, it's the way you organize your body. Well, I mean, yeah, I mean, I, there, there was definitely certain people that I played against that could hit dramatically harder than other people. And they, yeah. they weren't bigger, they weren't fast or whatever. And uh, I used to just joke and called it inertia, that they had something that connected them to the earth that allowed them to be able to mobilize better, uh, you know, and I remember, uh, you know, same thing with uh, with hand speed. Um, it didn't matter how strong you were. If your hands were slow, you never could hit me or the hits were never, uh, you know, very devastating. Um, it was almost more important for hand speed than strength. And I just remember like the idea, and that's really where we got to the idea of power athlete. It's not strength athlete. It's not speed athlete. It's power athlete. The ability to stay or display your strength dynamically is how I defined and really how I just kind of, uh, have always articulated power. And can, can I just give a comment on that? Because that again, Oh, we, we've got to spend time together. What a fabulous statement when I measure hand speed, and I've measured this in Muay Thai fighters uh, and, and other athletes as well, what we're talking about now is proximal stiffness determines distal speed. So when you have a stiffer core, you can unleash more power through the hips and shoulders. You run and cut faster, you punch hard, you get higher hand speed. So if I wiggled my finger like this, I had to stiffen my wrist. If I wanted to wiggle my wrist, I had to stiffen my elbow. Well, the mother of all proximal stiffness and where that distal speed comes from is the core. If I allow my spine to bend and leak energy that way, all of a sudden, distally, 
into the arms and, and legs, I've lost speed. So, it, I mean, where, where it comes for me is uh, I boxed when I was younger. And so, uh, you know, heavy bag, speed bag, mitts. And um, so, like, the, the scouting report of me was always, uh, you know, incredible hand speed. My hands were, in, when I played, I never thought anybody's hands were as fast as mine. And it just came from, you know, from the time I was pretty little just doing these deals. But also, uh, I have a whole series, and we put it out to guys, but I don't know if they necessarily see it, but uh, of... Um, what I call five-way med ball, which is actually used with a, you know, kind of a dynamic uh, kind of hard med ball that, that's reactive where you can actually rotate and throw from different uh, planes of motion and different movements. And where I developed that was the ability to be able to generate force while I maintain trunk stability and then be able to absorb it and be able to throw it back. And those little pieces were so fundamental for me to do my job, um, you know, the ability to set and throw. And I've showed guys it for years, but I don't necessarily know if they are able to connect the dots and being like, it's not only the throw, but the ability to catch and be able to absorb it and then be able to, you know, respond and turn it over and uh, just a lot of these little things. Um, and then using it as a way to challenge what we know is good technique. Like as I absorb forces, I go to rotate, do my knees cave? Am I keeping a good position with my knees over my insteps? How do my feet look? Where's my position? Is my big toe down? And all these little kind of pieces as you get into it become just kind of the, uh, really just the, the sum of the parts for you to be able to do your job well. And when I'd ask people or when people say, hey, you know, how are you able to do this? And I kind of break it down in these small pieces. It's just a lot of things that people have never really thought about or people just, you know, in the NFL do intuitively. Um, but I think a lot of these things in terms of developing athleticism and the ability to generate force and you know the, the things that we teach here can be taught if you understand the small intricate pieces. And that's what kind of drives me crazy where people are like, oh, the greatest athletes are just, you know, they're great because they can do this. No, there's a very real uh, thing that people do. Now, a lot of people get to it intuitively, like you're saying with the fighters, some guys can just punch better. But if you can explain this to people and they have a, a high level of coachability, you know, like they can understand movement and you can teach them in small little ways, whether it be, like you said, finding what they can and can't do and then teach these things and then let them kind of assemble the parts together. I really believe you can make somebody a better version of themselves fabulous fabulous so Stu, i think this is an opportune time to get into your definition of spine stability <laughs> all right well you know i i see it i'm not really an internet troller but occasionally people will, will ask me a question or someone's made a statement about core stability on on the internet uh, uh Stu, have i ever told you how much i hate the word core yeah yeah. I think I, do you remember I said that to you? Yeah, like, he's like, yeah, I don't care, John. Uh, like it, it fucking, it, it drives me crazy. Cause I always hear like these trainers talk about core and I always think apples have course. And I remember we talked yeah. about this and I, uh, right. I like the term trunk. Cause I think of like Oak trees and strength and roots and like this idea of like a strong, stable trunk to attach it. And, uh, every time I hear the word core, I, th I like at these people and I think, fuck, these guys are like apples or pears. Right. But, um, well, I, I think of spine stability being a, a, a spine geek, but look, the, I, the, there are very few people that actually measure stability and know what uh, enhances it or compromises it. So for, for our purposes now, there's three parts to uh, spine stability. And the first one is proximal stiffness unleashes all distal athleticism. If, say, uh, I, I wanted to move my femur really quickly, my leg, and I would use my hip flexors. Distally, 
if I use my hip flexors, it would bring my, my leg around in flexion, but it also bends my spine forward. But if I locked down my spine with stiffness, 100% of that muscular effort would go to great leg speed. So if my spine bends, I lose speed on the other side. So proximal stiffness is a necessary component of all distal athleticism, power development, and speed. So that's the first principle of proximal stability, spine stability, torso, whatever you want to call it. Uh, the second one is Dude. the spine. <laughs> Think uh, of it as uh, uh, I don't mean to cut you off, but uh, that might have been, uh, as I'm sitting there listening to this, I mean, uh, like, so, so rigidity and stability in the spine is really the the foundation of, of all distal speed well, and I think it's your ability to call upon it right well let, 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 let me give you even a more graphic example let's not race an yeah. f1 race i wasn't going to let you get away with this one too fast because uh what you oh. just said right there is uh is is yeah i mean we could write a whole course on that so like yeah, let, let's yeah let's not let, get, let's let get me into give one. you an example now from the, I mean, I love working with high-end athletes. I love working with very disabled people because then you really know your stuff. So let's take a small child now. And I know obviously you guys have a, a with your uh, charity, a, a, a special place in your heart for children. If you go to the children's neurology ward, you might find a child with a paralyzed quadratus lumborum muscle on one side. What can they not do? walk. When you say they had a, a right QL, which is the muscle that runs up and down the lumbar spine, if it's paralyzed on the right side, if they plant the right leg and swing their left leg, they're fine. As soon as they plant the left leg and swing the right leg, the whole pelvis drops and collapses because they had to turn on the obliques and the quadratus on that side. So the left glute and, and leg muscles that were supporting the stance in the, the pelvis would have just dropped. So do you see how you can't even walk without appropriate stiffness of the core? That's how important it is. But at the highest level, um, absolutely. Why do athletes grunt when they serve a tennis ball or throw a punch? It's adding even more stiffness. When I go <clears throat> like that, I just super drove my, my, my obliques uh, the intercostals to add even more stiffness. I get a few more miles per hour on the tennis racket, or I've stiffened up my punch just a little bit more, or whatever the case may be. A little harder, faster cut, plunk and cut. And so that that notion of proximal stability is is absolutely essential. But the second component of spine stability is this. Uh, think of the spine as a stack of oranges. If you put a book on top of it, it would collapse. When I take a spine out of a cadaver and put a weight on it, it collapses with 20 pounds. It won't even pull your upper body weight. Stand up and just feel your abdominal muscles and your back muscles. They will be slightly active, adding sufficient stiffness to keep that flexible rod upright. So the muscles of the torso act as a guy wire system supporting this flexible rod. So you need flexibility. You know, if you want to dance, you've got to tone down the muscle activity. We measured Middle Eastern uh, belly dancers, women. It was so, well, it was a beautiful study, obviously, but to watch their bellies move do all of these incredible contortionist acts, fabulous motor control, not one of them could do a sit-up. They were so weak. So they had wonderful mobility, but insufficient stability. They couldn't do it. They couldn't muster the 
the ability to get that flexible rod, add a bit of load to it now to sit up. So if you're going to get under a load or if you're going to survive impact in the NFL, that stack of oranges has got to be stiffened. Otherwise, it will, will buckle. And we were, I believe, the first ever to measure person's buck, uh, spine buckling. We saw it under video thoroscopy in a powerlifter lifting uh, 600 and some odd pounds. So that's the second component of spine stability, stiffening that flexible rod at the time that it takes load to allow it to survive a big load. Now, the third element is micro movements. Um, consider your knee when you blow the knee ligaments. The joint now becomes sloppy in shear. So the doc will do a shear test to see if there's micro movements occurring in your, in your knee. The spine is exactly the same. So if you damage a joint in the spine, like a disc, for example, and it becomes a little flatter, the disc is now sloppy. It's starting to bulge. Like if you let air out of your car tire, it bulges and it gets a bit sloppy. Those micro movements are now triggering pain in that person and pain will be inhibiting and, and all the rest of the things that we've already discussed. However, if you can tune appropriately the right muscle pattern, all of a sudden those micro movements are stiffened and arrested. And don't tell me they can't play in the NFL because I've got lots of them. So uh, you can appropriately stiffen. Now, how would you find the stiffening patterns that takes the person pain, pain away? Imagine this. If you could ask the athlete to stand still, then go up on their toes and just bounce on their heels, and, and you, you must have them relaxed. So there's no stiffness. And they'll say, oh, yeah, that, that just triggered back pain. Or no, my right toe just went numb if, if that uh, compressed a nerve. Then you'll say, good. Now you push your fingers in the lateral obliques and say, push my fingers out. Beautiful. Now do the heel drop. Pain better or pain worse? They say, yeah, no, my pain's gone. You just found the stiffening pattern of those core muscles that made them resilient to that compressive ballistic impact. They might say, you know what? You just increased my pain. So that shows their spine doesn't have the compressive ability yet to bear the load of even an abdominal contraction. So we might say, contract your pecs and your lats and do a shrug, but anti-shrug now. Pull down with your pecs and lats. Now try the heel drop. And they might say, you know what? That took my pain away. So these are ways that coaches can search for the appropriate stiffening pattern to engineer out the painful micro movements. So that's the third critical component of spine and, and torso stability for both resilience and athletic performance. And then the fourth, you know, we talk about uh, building armor in the athlete. So not only does every uh, collision athlete need an armor to protect the visceral contents and, and, the, and the spine and all the rest of it, and you've already alluded to that in, in, the, in the science of taking a hit, but, uh, you know, in, in martial arts, they, they teach these concepts of breathing behind the shield, learning to activate the, the stiffening structure. I mean, an exercise to train that might be a side plank. Now breathe heavily <gasps> while you're doing a side plank. You've got to activate the muscles to hold the side plank. You're teaching the diaphragm to become very athletic and pumping. It serves you well in the NBA if, if you've got Shaq O'Neal on your back and you're, you know, you're trying to get the rebound or whatever. So that concept of breathing behind the shield is so fundamental to, to setting up good footwork, uh, preparing for that 
uh, unanticipated, rather chaotic situation, whether it's on the gridiron or the basketball court. Anyway, there are four non-negotiable scientific principles that rule uh, resilience and performance. But it all comes back in each one of those cases to spine stability. A lot to take away. <laughs> well, I mean, uh, we we argued for years with uh, with with um, you know speed coaches that said you can't get faster in the weight room, and we knew that wasn't true because if you when you go in and you train, you lift weights. The idea of uh, challenging posture and position and developing stability and rigidity and like you said, you know, uh, spinal. Uh, I guess you could say uh, you know stability under you know under load. Uh, then it translates for your ability to go out and um, you know demonstrate speed as you get dynamic and like he said that uh, that proximal distal speed is a function of you being able to keep your spine rigid. I mean it's um, it doesn't seem like it like I I don't know like like these concepts seem pretty simple. I don't know why people fight them so hard. And that's probably yeah, something that thought we, on that one, John. Because I you know I agree with you a hundred percent. But it, we we've done this experiment twice, and it, it wasn't speed, but it was with volleyball players and vertical jump. So. Uh, we, you take a team, a volleyball team, and the coach might say to you, I want another two or three inches on everyone's vertical jump. So the most uh, trainers and coaches would say, okay, we're going to do a squat program in the, in the weight room. Um, what you will find is on average, about half the team will gain some height after a six-week squat program. 10% will make a damn bit of difference too, and 40% will lose a couple of inches off their vertical jump with that same strength training program. So then you ask yourself, what was the difference in all of those athletes that had we known those characteristics, we could have predicted a better tool in the weight room to train their vertical jump? Well, if you said to them, and most uh, athletes know this, if you say, are you naturally strong or are you naturally quick? If you're naturally strong, you stand over there and the naturally quicks over there. And what you'll find is at the end of the, the six weeks, the ones who are naturally strong, when you add even more strength without appropriate neurological speed, they got slower. So adding more strength to strength added a little bit more stiffness and you lost the tuning in the machine. But the ones who are naturally quick, now you add a bit more strength, you just unleashed that vertical jump. So th there's just an example of, uh, yes, we all believe in, in, in appropriate resistance and speed and, and all the rest of it in, in, in the, in the uh, training center. But was that slow squat the tool? Well, as it turns out, we've got to choose different tools. And that comes back to that idea of performing the assessment, knowing the goal, and then choosing the most appropriate tool, not only for the sport now, but even for that particular individual and how they're, they're wired. Yeah, but if, if you nothing exists in a vacuum and if you were to take um let's say all the athletes and just add a little bit of strength without teaching them how to use that strength dynamically like let's say for example as they're in the squat program you just teach them some basic footwork or even just a little bit of speed work so that now as they're gaining strength they're developing the, the their neurological ability to use the strength uh 
Um, I uh, like for me, I've just never been a fan of just hey, I just want to try to just get people as strong as they can. Yeah, the blocks, the yeah, block like yeah, like block periodization. Like I always look at things as concurrent. That uh, because I, I watched this in the NFL, I watched it myself. As I got bigger and stronger, if I didn't continue to run and move and and do things that were fostering developing my athleticism, I became slower and less useful and um, not not nearly as good as my job. So if all the coach said, hey, I just want you to get as big and strong as you can. It would end. I'd end up becoming a worse player, and I realized that uh, I had to develop almost a concurrent training style. That as I developed, uh, you know, putting on size or weight or strength or all these other deals, I had to learn to use those athletically, almost like I had to uh, to learn to use my new tools. And uh, you know, when I try to develop programs for people, and they're like, "Oh, I, you know, I'm not nearly as strong as I should be," I'd be like, "It's great, but we're going to continue to use that strength and, and teach you how to progress and use it, uh, you know, in terms of athleticism, being able to, you know, move and change direction, whether it be with uh, plyometrics, jumps, whatever it looks like, and or even just continue to play your sport and continue to use these things." And um, just looking at it and saying, you know, we're just going to develop this one characteristic for athleticism and hope that everybody gets better. It's just, I mean, it's what a lot of strength coaches do, but uh, we've always, you know, we've found it to not be the most advantageous or the most ideal way to train your athletes. Yeah, for the greatest population. Yeah, I mean, and, and we're always looking at it like, what's the what's the uh, the minimum dosage for the maximal return? I mean, any idiot can torch somebody down every day, but to be able to apply the appropriate dose at the right time to maximize the gains, I mean, it's like, you know, the the least in with the biggest return is really what I'm searching for. No, again, that's why you're so good at your job. <laughs> well, fabulous. Thank you. <laughs> well, in your book, you talk about three movements that could help establish this spine stability. So if we talk about accelerated adaptation or returns, even assessments, uh, can we go into these three movements so our, our listeners can walk away with the tool aside from your book that they can hit the ground running with? Right. Well, uh, they're called the big three and they, uh, for years we searched for different exercises that would guarantee appropriate spine stiffness, do it in a way that spared the spine because we know people have back pain. At least this is where we're starting from and, uh, build it in a way that first of all builds endurance. We want them to ability to move well over and over and over again. So to get a person out of pain, it's interesting having more endurance is wiser than having more strength. We've done studies on both athletes and occupational workers that having back strength is not prophylactic when you have pain. I'm not talking about performance now, I'm talking about pain. When you have endurance, you can repeat good form over and over and people get hurt when you break form. So we built the exercises, first of all, off an endurance programming philosophy. So the, the three exercises that kept bubbling to the top based on those criteria to get out of pain were the big three, which is the bird dog uh, on all fours. You extend one arm and one leg. And there's nuances in the book that, that uh, describe how to do those in a way that doesn't trigger particular pain mechanisms. That looks after the back muscles. For the side muscles, uh, it is the uh, side plank. You, you can't beat it. Uh, and, uh, you know, supporting yourself on the elbow brings in latissimus dorsi, quadratus lumborum, the obliques, all of the critical elements. And then for the front, most people start off with this modified curl up. They lay on their back, but they 
place hands under their lumbar spine to achieve their elastic equilibrium, the least stressed position of their spine. It's hurting. We need to build load-bearing capacity. So don't flatten the spine to the floor, which is a typical Pilates uh, type of instruction, for example. Um, and then uh, we, we talk about programming of that. But anyway, that's the beginning of building that spine stability. Um, now, the, the uh, of course, they can move on to uh, exercises like stir the pot, and and then we might get standing and do a suitcase carry and these kinds of things. Um, but but what's so interesting is some back pain people will say, you know, after I do those big three exercises, I feel better. My pain is gone. In fact, I'm pain resilient for the next two hours. So if that's the, the person's particular response to doing it, we say, good, do half volume of the exercises mid-morning and do half volume mid-afternoon. And there, I've got some NFL players who are doing that. And it allows them to keep that pain-free capacity throughout the day so they can survive, uh, you know, daily uh, training, game days, and all the rest of it. So that's, that's the first part. It adds a residual stiffness that in some people with their neurology, it stays for a couple of hours. Others, it uh, wanes away uh, a little bit faster. But then again, we, we measure, uh, and I said we did this in Muay Thai fighters, that's a static hold uh, philosophy. When we measured their before and after fist and leg strikes, they hit harder because of that more core stiffness, backing up that punch. So, you know, Bruce Lee used to say, um, when you're striking, be as fast and loose as you can, but when your fist hits the bag uh, or the opponent, we direct all the mental energy into that fist. And what he really meant was you stiffen the body uh, at that instant. So, uh, but there's also a time for dynamic uh, what shall we say, uh, spine stability exercises as well, because we've measured that and that increases closing velocity and closing velocity. You get the first pulse, boom, and that's your foot leaving the ground or your fist just leaving your protected defensive position. The closing velocity is how fast your fist now moves to the target. That's determined by muscle relaxation rate. And then on impact, you have to stiffen again. So that closing velocity of foot, foot speed, John, you certainly understand hand speed. It's that magical blend of appropriate core stiffness and distal uh, relaxation and appropriate pulsing distally that produces that speed. So we found it was the dynamic uh, spine stabilization routines that increased closing velocity. So now we've got the athleticism. We've got faster speed and and better impact. Uh, something that we uh, we you know we've been preaching and talking a lot about is uh, foot position. So we always teach people with this kind of toes forward kind of squat and different movement. And the reason being is uh, not only is it the you know the most stable position for us in terms of changing direction, but also the idea of being able to put the big toe on the ground. Uh, we hear a lot of people coach the squat about the idea of rocking back on the heels and they can't necessarily drive the big toe on the ground. We found that when you don't put your big toe on the ground, it's really tough to fire your glute, almost near impossible. Uh, so the ability to put 
put, you know, really push that big toe on the ground, drive the glute. Um, we see a lot of dysfunction too, and a lot of back injury come from people that squat with their feet extremely duck footed, roll back on their heels or play on the outside, and they never really get that big toe down the ground and can never get their glute to fire. I always wonder if that becomes a contributing factor in terms of, you know, bilateral hip hinging and a lot of the movements that we see traditionally done uh, in terms of contributing to a back injury if they never really learn to engage their glute and then with the toes out and the big toe up. Well, I, I have so many thoughts listening to that explanation. Um, wh wh why are they squatting in the first place? You've chosen the squat as a tool to achieve a goal. Maybe they'd be far better off to forget squats and go push a car back and forth in the parking lot. That sure. will determine big toe athleticism because <laughs> if you can't grip the ground with your toes, you're not pushing that car. So do you see the translation right uh, away? Yes, uh, 100%. And you're talking about uh, <laughs> like, like when we try to explain this to people, um, they almost look at us like we're speaking Greek. What do you mean the big toe on the ground when I squat? And like you just said, well, can you push a big toe? Let, let's go out and push a car, just push a sled. Is there off any your way heels. For, off your heels? Is there any way for can't you to yeah, you can't do it? I'm going to try. Like, like you have to be able to drive your big toe in the ground. And, uh, you know, this was something I argued what? for years with in terms of NFL coaches and offensive linemen. Uh, there's a guy with Charles Bentley right now who's uh, got his uh, O-line academy, uh, O-line performance down in uh, Arizona. Uh, and I watch him teaching technique, especially the duck footed position, playing on the outside of the foot. And he never teaches these guys to put their big toe in the ground. And like, uh, like it's one of those things that I see and I know what he's teaching and he is uh, completely of, uh, beyond reproach that he is not teaching the best thing on the planet, which always makes me believe that if you think you know everything, you're fucking, you know, uh, lost already. But watching the way that he's teaching these guys, um, the idea of foot position, open out, you know, putting, you know, having the play off of their instep, the knee caving in, not really ever focusing on putting that big toe in the ground. And it, uh, it literally creates a really bad position in an unstable position. So I always thought if there's a contributing factor in terms of creating that, that trunk stability and that rigidity within the spine so that you can absorb and give force in terms of like foot position, big toe down, glute firing, and just being able to maintain that proper posture. Yeah, no, fabulous. You know, uh, what was, again, uh, gosh, I, I love these conversations. This is just fabulous. Uh, I was thinking, you know, you, you've spoken about Charlie Francis, and, and as you were saying that, I was just going back to the sprint world and, and Charlie's emphasis on, on the big toe. And, you know, you'd see someone pulling a hamstring. And uh, when, when you don't use your big toe, you focus on only one of the hamstrings. And if that's the one you keep pulling, if you can teach them to get that big toe down and distribute the load equally among the three hamstrings, all of a sudden you've got a mechanism now where you've increased the resilience to future hamstring. <laughs> so, you know, this is, this is just fabulous and it just never ends. But uh, yeah, there's, look, there's no perfect squat. Why are you doing it? Tune the exercise to, you know, if you're, if you're training to set up the lifter's wedge, leaning tower forward, grip the ground, big toes, start the explosive drive out of the hole if you're a power lifter, and then shift to the back of the heels to get the proper line of drive and thrust line on the bar, so be it. But I sure as hell wouldn't do that to an NFL player. Well, I mean... I the, the, would either. <laughs> well, I, I, yeah, I mean, the... the 
We use the uh, the basic squat. I mean, though, the, you know, part of our system here at Power Athlete is based off of this idea of uh, X, Y, and Z axis. You know, the lower body, if you were to break it into, you know, with the hips into an X, Y, and Z axis, you have your X axis, which would be your bilateral hip hinging. You have your Y, which is going to be um, uh, rotation like stepping or lunging. And then you're going to have your Z where it's coming through, which is going to be the changing of the iliac crest like a, like a step up. And so we kind of break movements into this X, Y, and Z axis and realize that, you know, athleticism is just your ability to tie X, Y, and Z axis together in a way that's, you know, both uh, effortless and seamless. And, um, you know, using and really just teaching a basic barbell back squat as a way for people just to challenge that X axis is a really good way in terms of being able to put on muscle, develop, uh, you know, stability with, you know, through the trunk and be able to travel through full ranges of motion. And um, it's really just kind of a, a beginning place. The problem becomes is that as you develop competency and proficiency in that movement, you have to progress to other movements. The problem is, is most athletes just get stuck within the same movement pattern, and it's just one. Uh, just one. Um, you know, do you need to be able to do everything? Yes. The problem is, is people are like, well, I, I'll just be better if I squat. If squatting's your deficiency and you can do all these other things. But the problem becomes is that if people can't even begin to do this one little thing, how do we progress them on to do other things? Uh, you know, this idea of a big toe in the ground, and I mean, uh, I got my all, you know, what was really the the catalyst for helping me with my patellar tendon rupture and really rupturing the retinaculum and all the, the nerve damage that I had was uh, Charlie's EMS stuff. So I started using the EMS based on Charlie's principles and and that was like uh, such a, a huge piece for me in terms of coming back. But also it exposed me to Charlie and, um, and a, a lot of his movements with, uh, you know, eccentric load uh, being able to uh, develop, uh, you know, not only pliability but strength in the hamstring more so than just flexibility because up in that time people talked about stretching your hamstrings and charlie's deal was like if you can't do uh i forgot what he calls them like nordic hamstring curls i, I used to call them uh, eccentric hamstrings he was a russian hamstring. yeah, yeah russian hamstrings so he always said that if you if you do those you'll never never pull a hamstring so that was a huge part of my training protocol and i never pulled a hamstring but the big thing was that as you go down as you go to do the explosive rebound you curl your heel and you pull and you start working on eccentrically loading and then being able to dynamically pull it back uh, but like you said, the big toe thing is always kind of really bothered me a ton in that um, when you watch guys, especially in football, everybody's so duck-footed. And with that position, they kind of roll up and they really can never get their full foot in the ground. And they would kind of play in this weird deal where the knee's kind of constantly caving. And every time I see it, I think, God damn, that like, it has to be something tied in with the glute and the low back. Because a lot of guys that I've seen who've let the knees cave in tremendously end up developing some form of dysfunction and back injury. Hmm. Yeah, I'm just listening to this and thinking of uh, the, the getting back to uh, the, the car example. How many car mechanics is there in the U.S.? There's got to be tens of thousands, but how many of them constantly can produce a car and tune a car to win Indy year after year? And how many trainers can consistently produce a tuned athletic body to win? And, and I think that's what you're describing. And I, I wish I could teach others a little bit in, in how to tune a body and be cognizant of all of the variables that you just pulled in with the, with your last uh, uh, conversation. It's difficult, isn't it? Yeah, no, I mean, it, uh, 
I think part of the problem too is, um, you know, for you, you've been doing this for so long and you've, you've set up so many different tests. You've had so many people come to you with so many dysfunctions that you've created almost a, uh, like a toolkit, like, like a mechanic that you show up, somebody comes in the back injury, you know, you roll your tools out, you open your toolbox and you start applying, you know, can you do this? What can you do? What can't you do? And you start going through this list of assessments to effectively figure out where the dysfunction is. And then you put together a, a protocol that allows them to get back on the racetrack in a lot of ways. The problem mm. becomes is that you develop that over a lifetime of not only clinical research, but having access to some of the world's best athletes that like I, you know, I joked about in the NFL, you know, if you got to go see Stu McGill, that was like, you were at the, the fucking end of it. You know, the trainers could no longer, I mean, it, it's true. Like I, uh, that's what I laugh about is that, you know, the trainers, when they couldn't figure out the back injury, it's like, oh, we got to go see Stu McGill. And like, like you said, yeah. NFL players come see you all the time and they, they know that you can figure this thing out. And, well, uh, not always. <laughs> well, well, no, but but it, I mean, if if it, there's a good chance that uh, that you're going to be able to uh, at least figure out where the problem is and how to get them back. But I think the problem is is that people fail at the margins of their own experience. That people don't have the access to uh, as much information, and really, people. Um, get extremely kind of almost protective in a lot of ways. And that, uh, you know, if they show that they don't know something, then that, you know, then they no longer become an expert and now nobody will see them and their business fails. So they have to constantly guard this little fiefdom, this little, uh, you know, whatever the little enterprise, if, if my deal's stretching, then everybody needs to stretch as much as I can, because that's how I pay the bills. And the problem is, is, uh, that's bullshit. Um, and something that we've always talked about with power athletes is the idea of battle the bullshit that, uh, you know, whatever whatever means necessary to increase performance is what we're going to go after. And if an athlete needs to stretch more, then you know what? He can stretch more. If an athlete doesn't need to stretch, fuck it. We, we're not going to have him stretch. If you need to be able to step, lunge, and squat, if you need to be able to push a car, whatever allows you to be the best version of you is what the training looks like. And I think um, that mobility and resiliency, as you talk about, comes from just having the experience of uh, just being around you know, people that can't solve the problem or don't have the experience to necessarily be able to figure, uh, you know, just be able to figure it out. And, um, you know, that's what's, I think, come from a lifetime of training. Right. right. Uh, you know, I'm struggling at the moment because uh, I've been trying to create a program to create a group of elite providers of all of this. And it's such a difficult thing to do because, as, as you've just described, Part of it is science, and, and it's pretty heavy science, and it's science from a lot of disciplines, a little bit of mechanics, a little bit of neurology, a little bit of psychology, etc. But at the end of the day, there's also a fair amount of horse sense. How do you know when that's enough? How do you know the magnitude? How, how, how do you know when to push and when to back off? And it's those little things you see it in their face. You see how they came in the next day. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, of course you know what I mean. So, yeah, it's, it's how do you teach the person that horse sense, how to read a person, and then have all the tools in your toolbox and the, and, and the uh, ability to know which tool at which magnitude and volume and what's the rest period? Boy, all big, huge questions. Stuart, so, you know... Something that's just kind of stuck with me the whole show is you were talking about much earlier. You have these elite, maybe uh, PGA, NFL, you know, folks who come in and I think you said they were misguided because, you know, what's your goal? I want to get back out and I want to get, you know, get back on the pitch, on the field, whatever. Uh, I assume the next step is like, you know, 
pulling the pulling them back a bit and having a talk about becoming pain free. Are you ever met with um, pushback on that? Like, no, no, that's fine. I can I'll just get through. Just get me out there, doc. Or, you know, as you talk through uh, kind of your algorithm, does it begin to make sense to them? Is there is there a quick buy in? I'm just curious. Uh, it's the full spectrum. There are those Shocker. who uh, it's like talking to a wall and uh, I fail with and they go on their way. And there are others who like Brian Carroll. He said, uh, I'm coming as an open book. I'm going to be humble. Tell me in your opinion, what I need to do. And I said, Brian, for the next year, you are going to build a pain-free foundation forget about competing. And then we're going to evaluate and ask the question, are you ready now? And do you really want to have a run at this record? Mm-hmm. And it's successful pros that, uh, that, that, that can do that. Um, uh, it's sort of a short trite answer, but it, it kind of, that's the way it is. It, is it something like the, uh, you get to the point where, um, all that matters is getting better and you have to almost leave your ego at the door and kind of hand over and say, you know what, uh, I don't have any ego in this. I just want to be better. So teach me, show me, lead me. And I think um, for me, especially like I've always had pride in who I am, but the ego never so big that I can't learn. And if somebody knows something, then I have to, you know, put it aside and whether or not whatever I feel or think uh, if there's somebody that can help. And I, I, I can think of me at my darkest moment uh, after I retired from the NFL, when dude injury had consumed me. Um, you know, me calling my buddy Tom Inkledon out in Arizona and saying, Tom, I, I don't know what to do. Like, I can't do anything. Like, I'm fucking broken. And he was uh, was like, you know, there's a guy that I know up in Caseville, Utah, that we got to go see. And we went up and saw Dr. Bueller, who worked on me. And I walked out of there three days later and literally jumped up on the hood of the car and stepped down and thought, fuck, I could go back and play in the NFL right now. And um, I was good to retire. I'm like, you know what? Uh, this thing stole a lot from me. I, I dedicated, I mean, I set my body on the funeral pyre of, of football and burned it. And uh, I got a second chance and I'm not going to fuck this one up and I'm not going to go wow. back and do it. And I think you get to the point where um, you've done what you've wanted to. Uh, the injury is, uh, at, you know, and here's the deal. Very few people ever get to retire on their own uh, on their own terms. Like, you know what? I, I won the Super Bowl. I went out. I'm injury free. I had this incredible career and now I get a chance to be a TV commentator and, you know, marry some supermodel and live for the rest of my life. Very, very few people ever get that. Most people, <laughs> Tom Brady. yeah, Tom Brady, <laughs> they don't walk away. They fucking limp away. They get carried away. They, uh, you know, they get, uh, carted away because of injury and to be able to come in and reclaim that is, uh, is one of the best gifts. And, um, uh, it's something that I think as an athlete, you know, when you play at a high level and you have injury and you have, you know, trials and tribulations and setbacks, you get to the point like Brian Carroll just walks in and he's like, dude, I, I'll do whatever you say. Just help me get better. And for somebody like yourself, you're like, okay, here, here, here's how we're going to do it. And, uh, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to do everything I have. And I think that like is the, uh, you know, the true definition or just really the, uh, the best part about this is just helping people be better versions of themselves. And when you run into people that fight it, that have this like weird deal, you're like, why the fuck are you here? You're wasting my time and yours. Unless you come in with an empty cup, man, I can't help you. And that's yeah. something we constantly yeah. run yeah. into. While you're describing the gift of injury and it's how the winners in life handle it. And it's how the losers in life handle it. Uh, I'll, I'll give a little bit of an example here and the things that are uh, very um, 
uh, satisfying is the word I was, uh, I, I need a better word than that. But uh, I was uh, at a uh, medical school and, and sometimes they, they will invite me in and say, would you see three patients in front of our uh, uh, docs and, and show us how you do an assessment and, and come up with some kind of a, an exercise prescription. So the first guy they brought in this uh, big, this was, uh, I'll tell you, it was in England and they brought in this big rugby player. And I, I went through an assessment and tried to find his pain mechanism. The next person they brought in was a, an elderly woman. She was on the verge of tears. And I said, well, what, what's going on? She says, and she didn't really mention back pain, but she said, well, I have to leave my home because they're afraid that when I get up off the toilet, I'm going to fall and no one will find me. I need to go into a patient care facility. I have to leave my home. And she started to cry. Well, in about three minutes, I taught her, you know, our, the, the basic, what we'll call the short stop squat. Sniff, put a little air in your lungs, do a hip hinge, slide your hands down your thighs, grab your knees, and then a little correctors, a little leaning tower forward, put a little more weight on the front of your foot, get your hips back. Now, arc back into a position where the pain is gone. Well, again, we're, we're at about the one minute point of coaching. Now I said, carry more weight down your arms, which is really a, a stiffening trick. And now pull your hips through. And I just guided her through. She said, well, my pain's not gone. And then another little leaning tower just to balance up the weight. So she knew how to grip with her toes and her heels. Now she's perfectly in control. She's not going to fall over. And then she started to squat up and down. And in three minutes, problem solved. And a big smile came across her face. And, and I said, what's going on with you? She says, do you mean I need to leave my home now? And I said, no, you don't. Someone failed to teach you squat 101 with all the great docs of this university someone forgot you haven't been to a good trainer yet who who owns movement it's the great trainers and there's not one health system in a person's body that doesn't depend on good appropriate movement for health you guys have the most important role in the health of, of the nation when you screw up it's a big deal and more than half of the back pain patients I see have been caused by trainers. But I also see trainers have this, when they, when they take their seriously as professionals, they have the biggest role to play in the healthcare system. Forget about all this stuff about the president saying, you know, the system's bankrupt and whatnot. If they could get appropriate movement, you would see the diseases of choice, diabetes, you, you would see this uh, um, epidemic of opioids go down because docs would now not need to treat pain with pills, but rather appropriate movement. The world would change. Anyway, there's my little soapbox uh, uh, at the end, but the power to change someone's life so they don't have to go into a, 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 a care facility because you can teach them squat 101. They're, powerful they're, stuff, man. It's powerful stuff. It absolutely is. So at the end of the day, I'm in front of all of these docs. I'm on the verge of tears. But that that's the the the, the, the emotions of changing a person's life with a squat. Yeah, but I mean you're you're talking about um and not to discredit any of the MDs, but uh, like they've never been taught the idea of movement. It's always like a pathology, right? So there's dysfunction, and how do I fix it? I either fix it with a pill or a surgery. And um, I remember uh, going to a doctor and him being like, well, you know, you know this, and you know, he, he really only had two options. I said, the only thing you can give me is a pill or a surgery? He said, yeah. 
I'm like, there has to be something else out there. And he's like, that's not what I was taught. I was taught either, and they, you and know. they have 100% faith because they've made a significant investment in their education financially. Well, here's my problem with uh, with a lot of the MDs. I went to school with a, with a number of guys who are now doctors uh, that I wouldn't pay to fucking wash my car that mm-hmm. were fucking idiots in college. And they were intelligent enough to be able to get through it and do this. And they're clinical doctors. And I, I like the problem becomes is that uh, they are working within the confines of which they've been taught. You know, they have this, uh, you know, here's my, you know, standard of care. This is what we know. And the problem becomes is that the, the people that really help people are the people that are, are not constrained by that, that are thinking outside the box, that are, are, are constantly doing research. I mean, if, uh, if you were a clinical doc who worked on back pain 30 years ago and you've had a practice for 30 years and all you've been doing is working on the same people and over and over again, your skills would have never improved. But because you're constantly researching, working with new people and finding new ways to attack it, you're constantly evolving. And I think that's what we're doing is that the idea that, um, you know, constantly ramping up performance and looking at different ways to attack this by, you know, increasing our genealogy, reaching out to people, hearing new ideas is why we're continuing to grow. And if the training program that I subscribed to 20, 30 years ago hasn't evolved, then I haven't evolved. The training hasn't evolved and I haven't taken what I've learned along the way to, you know, necessarily uh, translate it into a performance-based style of training. And I think the problem becomes is that um, people like get so steeped in, you know, this is who I am, this is what I do, and they can't necessarily, they're not malleable, they're not flexible enough to be able to learn and bring in new ideas. And um, to me, that's the travesty of this deal. Couldn't agree more. Well said. Well, Stu, hey, uh, thank you so much for jumping on, man. I think, I mean, I think we're kind of at the end of the road here. It's been extremely fruitful talk, just like your last, uh, your last tour here. And for those of you who don't know, yes, this is a two-timer for Stu. It's his second time on Power at the Radio. But, um, but hey, uh, also his book, The Gift, uh, the Gift of Injury, uh, is come, I, I think it's out right now. We got an advanced copy. Uh, Bill Kazmaier wrote the forward. If those of you guys don't know who Bill Kazmaier is, you should punch yourself in the face. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and also Bill, uh, Brian Carroll, who, you know, uh, extremely, um, telling of him as an individual for yeah, him, to put this out. Yeah. To, to put this out and to be as honest. Cause you know, like the idea of like, I don't want to show a chink in my armor. Uh, but you know, just goes to show, um, you know, the depth of him as an individual and, uh, you know, who he is that he would come out and, you know, I mean, to, to be this honest and really go through it is, uh, was inspiring. So and, and, uh, you know, Brian is a fabulous human being. Yeah. Kudos yeah. to you guys. And um, yeah, thanks for, for, for coming out with this. This is amazing. And Stu, we often talk about limiting factors of movement, but they're also limiting factors for a coach. So we run into ego experience and knowledge. And I believe this book presents the opportunity. If you let your ego down to provide some guidance for assessments, guidance for understanding the, the processes and the patterns of injury. So if you know what to look for, then you can program one to avoid those and two to really prevent those mechanisms from happening. Terrific. Well, Stu, where, do, where do people go? Just Google it. Uh, no, well, it, it should be on. Uh, it should be on Amazon. But I also know Stu's got a, a website, um, which is I think it's Back Pain Pro. No, it's BackFitPro, B-A-C-K-F-I-T-P-R-O, BackFitPro.com. But it is also uh, on Amazon. But um, anyway, I have enjoyed this time to no end. Thanks so much, Tex, John, and uh, Luke. Uh, Keep on doing what you're doing. It's fabulous. Likewise. And uh, uh, Doc, you are always invited. If you can ever find Uh a time to come down and hang out, we'd love to have you. I, I, I just might. 
Please, please, yeah, <laughs> yeah please take great. us up on Return it. What you want? <laughs> please, please, please take us up on it. I think your logo is is a lot better than ours, though. <laughs> oh, yeah. well, it's the power of the mustache <laughs> you know i mean uh it, it's almost like if he shaved it now i mean you know people be like hey uh did she stew miguel no i didn't see well, the no i i did shave it when my daughter asked me she says she I, I usually have a beard in the winter and and i've I'd never been shaved since i was about 18 and my daughter said oh dad you should shave so i did but i realized someone came and picked me up at the airport to put on a gig at their facility the next weekend and people were so annoyed we came to see the mustache <laughs> <laughs> part of the gig and i had to grow it back my wife hates it it's it's bonafide wife repellent but anyway ah, there you go <laughs> <laughs> well Stu, take care and i guess until next time hopefully it's out here next time we see you yes sir thank you Fabulous. okay right. thanks guys thank bye you. bye, bye. bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. If this episode did not get you pumped on learning more about how pain affects training, recovery, and mental state, nothing will. Be sure to find Stu's book, Gift of Injury, on www.backfitpro.com. That's his website. You can also find Stu on Facebook and Instagram by searching his name or doing a quick search of Backfit Pro. Until next time, bye! Bye!